1: Hello,
2: welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Don't forget, you can listen to the whole show on DAB, on your smart speaker, online at times.radio, or download the Times Radio app, where you can listen to the radio live, you can listen back to the last seven days of shows, and you can listen to uh, the excellent podcast in the Times, like this one, uh, what you are listening to now, Times Red Box. Um, get in touch with us. if you, In particular, if you want to have a go at doing our quiz, can you get to number 10? Ten questions, each loosely connected to ten cabinet jobs. Uh, the more questions you get, right, the better the jobs you get taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. If you want to have a go at doing that, uh, email me surely at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon indeed. Coming up, as Boris Johnson announces plans for England to leave one version of lockdown and go into another one, which is just called Tears, uh, we have a tour of the UK to see how different parts of the country are prepared. ...preparing for that. But first, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel... ...and on a Monday, it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. First of all, let's talk about the <laughs> Labour Party. Really interesting story in the, Par- uh, the Times today by Eleni Correa. Uh, the, the Labour Party has lost, uh, was it, 10% of its members... ...between April and November. Uh, it's, uh, lo- and at one stage, it was losing 250 a day... Uh, ...since Keir Starmer was elected last spring... ...with supporters of Jeremy Corbyn leading an exodus from the party... Um, really interesting, this uh, Libby, because um, obviously, when Jeremy Corbyn became leader, uh, the, the influx was seen as a great triumph. He had, what was it, half a million, 600,000 uh, party members, and it was a sort of ringing mm. endorsement of his leadership. Weirdly, Starmerites might see this as an endorsement of his leadership. This is exactly what he wanted. He wanted all of the sort of hard left Corbyn supporters out of the party.
3: Yes, I think so. It's still, of course, the biggest party by membership. Um, and, uh, I think you're, you're quite right. It'll be the whole, uh, sort of, uh, very young, furious, super virtuous, uh, Corbynite group. Who are leaving? But what we need now, what he's really got to work at, is to get proper Labour members to stick at it and to join. Because we're going to need, we haven't had a decent opposition for some time now because of Corbyn. And we need a really strong, sane party of the socially responsible liberal left uh, now, especially to talk for the, to speak for the poorest. I mean, to speak for all these people currently losing their jobs and being excluded from government help. It's going to be some very tough times this next year. And we need somebody, you know, who really speak out in opposition firmly uh, for these people. And uh, that is the job of Labour. And we need some proper Labour back. Keir starmer has got work to do. He's got to pull in some new people uh, to replace some of the heavy-duty Corbynites who wanted to smash everything down.
2: (laughs) Uh, Richard, it was really striking last week. I mean, Boris Johnson's first week post-Cummings relaunch week, uh, he managed to uh, get himself self-isolated. Uh, declare that devolution was a disaster Um, and then uh, there was all the complaints about contracts and money being wasted and then ended the week standing by his uh, Home Secretary but losing his ethics watchdog in the row over Priti Patel's alleged bullying at the Home Office and yet the Tories ended the week ahead in the polls. I think it was an opinion poll which put the Tories up and Labour down. So uh, what is Keir Starmer doing wrong, do you think? Why is he not having more of an impact? Really, the Labour Party should be miles ahead now, shouldn't it?
4: I think it takes time, doesn't it, for the change. The Labour Party is still itself a terrible brand, even though Keir Starmer as a leader is now quite consistently ahead of Boris Johnson as a leader in the polls. The damage done by those Corbyn years um, is going to last for quite a long time, and you need quite a lot of quite dramatic moments to demonstrate to the electorate that you've changed um, which is why I think that links back to this story about the Labour Party members leaving and it doesn't matter because actually Keir Starmer, if he's focusing rightly on the voters uh, and that risks alienating some of these hard left people um, then that's actually a good thing and that's fine uh, so I think one, for example the expulsion of, uh, the suspension rather of Jeremy Corbyn and the decision not to give him the whip um, was was a, was a really good decision because that's proving that you're on the side of the voters rather than the left-wing Corbynistas. Uh, and it, that's one of the – Andrew Cooper, the da- David Cameron's former director of strategy, had this phrase, you know, you need 10,000-volt initiatives to break through to the voters that's about the yeah. fact you've changed. And yeah. that is one of those 10,000-volt initiatives potentially that has the power to sort of prove – he, this really is new leadership. And until he can do that, and that needs to have policies as well, it's no good just saying we're sticking with the whole Corbyn programme, until they can prove that they're genuinely credible again, as a party as well as a leader, then uh, they're going to struggle in the polls, I think.
2: Is that, do, you, do you agree, Libby? Uh, Keir Starmer doesn't strike me as a 10,000-volt sort of a politician. <laughs>
3: No, he's not. But maybe maybe the country is is yearning for a bit less rhetoric and uh, a bit less grandstanding. Uh, But yes, there there has to be a, a very, very firm and firm and detailed set of policies have to start being built up now for us really to know what, uh, what, what he is about and what Labour is about. And I, I'm all for kind of, I'm for mid-Labour, you know, I think we and we and uh, this business of needing a good opposition, I can't hammer it home too much. You know, the disaster of the Corbyn years has been, there just wasn't a very credible opposition which most of the country could get an idea might be trustworthy. Um, people thought he was nuts um, <laughs> and, and I think this, <laughs> this is really not helpful to democracy.
2: Yeah, and I, I was thinking this last week, that when there was all this debate about, you know, he's been let back in as a Labour Party member and he's not been let back in as a Labour member, most people, to the extent they're following it, will have heard Keir Starmer has not let Jeremy Corbyn back in and people who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn will probably be uh, quite happy about that. Let's move on now. Um, I've got a little bit of music for you, Libby. Your favourite music. <laughs> the uh, I hope it, yeah, you're not getting um, cold sweats. So you've written about this in the paper today, uh, Libby. About how uh, online connection is no substitute for human interaction.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is a there's a sort of. Uh, I think there's a risk at the moment because it has been absolutely brilliant. And I have to say, I mean, I'm being called a dreary old Luddite by a miserable man under the line who thinks that I'm against (laughs) all online stuff. Of course I'm not. They've been amazing tools, these online things in work, in entertainment, even in seeing a GP, and especially in education and universities. But there will be people who think that for the sake of economy and for the sake of their own convenience, I'm thinking of universities here, you know, they may think, oh, blend learning, you know, it's just as good you know, oh nobody ever needs to be taught in private except you know, possibly in person for once a fortnight or once every three weeks or whatever I think there's a real risk that people will think that this is not just a tool it's been a brilliant, brilliant tool, it is a brilliant tool, and I've done everything, I've book groups everything, quizzes, the lot, you know, meetings interviews, but it's not the same, it is not a new stage in human evolution, we need to be together in person I wish to be in that studio now now with you indeed, and I would be able to see your body language. I would be able to get your pheromones and realise, are you scared? (laughs) Are you happy? Are you really on my side? Think of meetings. There's a real risk, and I've known of one company where this is Mm. sort of starting to happen now, where there's a little kind of elite of a very small management group who do go in and do have meetings, and that's where the real decisions get made and all the poor old irks are sort of banished out to work from home and not really be part of anything and be presented to online rather than properly consulted i think there's a difference between the two kinds of communication and we need to be aware of it and we need to know that we've got to get back into much more human interaction
2: there's a brilliant line in your column we are animals not angels we need to breathe and laugh together i couldn't agree with that more Um, uh,
3: we are beasts we are beasts
2: (laughs) (laughs) rachel would you like to be in this uh, studio with my pheromones
4: I definitely would <laughs> I, I completely agree with Libby on this, actually. And, you know, you just can tell when you're doing interviews for the paper... You can get what somebody says down the line, mm. uh, but you can't really get what, what they are, the essence of them, the character, the emotions. Uh, so it's a very different kind of interview. You can have the sort of intellectual conversation. You know what points they're making, but you don't have an emotional connection at all with them. Or it's much harder to do that unless you know somebody very, very well. Um, And I also think, obviously, there's all the points about um, the inequalities being encouraged in education in particular. So the difference in Mm. the online learning between the private and the state sectors is really shocking. And obviously, there are a whole lot of um, children who just don't have computers or access to good Internet, broadband or whatever. Uh, And, you know, the the same goes for universities. How are you really going to have an intellectual in-depth thoughtful debate sort of at one distance removed um it's it's sort of plate glass syndrome with the computer isn't it you just can't really mm. get to the crux of thing, anything i find
2: well i have to say having um, having, um, having you know times really launched in the middle of the pandemic so we've, i've had a few people in the studio but not many I'd find it very weird if people kept coming in now. Just to, you know, while you're chatting, I could be eating a biscuit or, you know, a cup of tea or checking Twitter. I'd suddenly have to be very polite and appear to be engaged constantly with what my guests are talking about.
3: But listen, but Matt, on on, on the other hand, another small point I make in this is what's so interesting is that actually audio only is better you know, in person is best, and then uh, audio. And the absolute worst is video. If we were all talking now through a Zoom thing on video, we would not be talking as happily and freely as we are now. So, audio only is actually a, a better, you know, a, a better route. I've certainly I really found this agree doing with that, interviews. Actually, definitely, I
4: find the video thing so distracting. And I think your other point you make very well, Libby, is that entertainment, you know, theatre. It's just not the same when you watch a sort of video production as actually being there in the mm. theatre with the audience, with the actors. You feel the frisson of the atmosphere in a way that just doesn't come across on a screen. Uh, and well, I, if you've ever been you in, in the Young Vic,
3: it, you've did, been think. in the Young Vic where people actually gasp together in amazement. You know, it's an mm. incredibly sort of warm audience, yeah.
2: Oh, it makes me so sad because I walk past that every morning on the way in and just can't wait to go back to... Sit with close quarters with strangers and yeah, laugh and clap and gasp and whatever. Uh, someone's just um, texted in actually saying uh, presented to rather than consulted is how it's always been in my entry level admin job. I suppose that's sort of the point you're making, isn't it, Libby? That you get, you get the bosses uh, mm. travel into London or, or travel into the office, make the decisions and then present them. I'm just going to share my screen and present what, you know, the decisions that have been made uh, to everyone else via, via Zoom.
4: I also find it much harder mm, to sort of intervene in online meetings. So I, I, I'm quite bad at talking in meetings anyway, in a sort of slightly pathetic way. But when you're in, you're sitting at home and you've got the whole, it's sort of a much bigger thing to break in and actually pronounce, unmute yourself and say, I'm now talking in this meeting, <laughs> than when you're there and you can just have a thought. I don't know whether Libby agrees with that.
3: Well, yes, and the chair, and the chairman, I've chaired a lot of, of meetings in my time on, you know, all sorts of places and in public and so on. And what happens is you need to be able to glance around your panel and really catch an eye and see who needs to break in and who doesn't need to break in and who's going to be trouble. And also with a big audience, you know, if it's a lecture or something or Q&A, you've got to look around that audience and, well, I won't say spot the loony, but, um, you know, you, you do need to know. Um, you, do need to, you do need to get the body language um, when you pick somebody out. Yes. It's, it, there's nothing, be, nothing beats being a human animal.
2: Yeah, you're right. But that, that, um, I'm now going to take some questions. If the first hand that goes up belongs to someone who's also b- seems to have bought a lot of carrier bags with them, then you probably know <laughs> and, too. and the Bible,
3: a Bible, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, uh, let's move on, because I want to talk to you about a story that, uh, that's in The Times today, which really caught my eye and made me, um, well, I just think it's absolutely bonkers. Extinction Rebellion has called for supporters to stop making mortgage payments and take out loans with no intention of paying them back in an attempt to force the government and banks to take further action towards reducing carbon emissions uh, anyone, libby good idea
3: it, it, no it's very old fashioned revolutionary idea that you've got to destroy you've absolutely got to destroy and then you will build again something better because you are cleverer. And that's it. You know, you want to disrupt business systems. You want to disrupt everything which civilization works on and which enables people to be fed and looked after by health services and so on. You've just got to disrupt everything um, and and then you can build something better. It's really old fashioned, basic entry level teenage revolution. <laughs> you know, we've all been there, but some of us just grew up.
2: But, Rachel, the thing that struck me about this is, is that there's, there's quite an obvious flaw in this plan, that if only a few people decide to not pay their mortgages or their credit cards, or whatever, they will end up in a lot of bother, potentially, while having no impact at all on um, saving the planet. They, they, well, they...
4: exactly. It's a completely ridiculous idea. I don't see how it's going to work on a practical level. And then, as you say, the the sort of debt default people are going to be the ones in trouble uh without actually having any genuine impact it was a bit like when they um glued themselves to the tube trains and all the you know the nurses and secretaries who were trying to go to work in the city couldn't get there and they were supposed to be complaining about fat cats or oil companies in the city but actually it's completely counterproductive uh and Mm. unless what they want sorry yeah
3: i was well, going to say what what they want is to be in trouble they want to be pursued by bailiffs and police and courts and then they can say that they're being uh, persecuted for their beliefs you know that 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 it's just the knock everything down um, mm. syndrome it's very narcissistic because it's about
4: them rather than actually making a difference it's, this isn't going to make any difference to climate change at all. And actually, the, um, the big risk is it actually, alienates you know, you,
2: people from the cause. That's You know, we were talking to well, um, it, someone, exactly. we were talking about uh, polling and for support for various green measures um, just before you came on. And there was, you know, there's a real concern. that People just think, this is completely bonkers. Mm. Uh, whereas actually, lots of people who do think we should be doing more to tackle climate change, uh, will just say, well, I can't, I can't support this lunacy.
4: Exactly. It's also muddling up sort of capitalism and... Yeah. The environment, which I do think Extinction Rebellion tends to do, so it's bring down the whole mm. capitalist system is the only way to save the planet. Whereas actually, there's quite a good argument that if you can get planes with much lower emissions through the market system, that's going to do more to help the environment yep. than just knocking everything down, or,
2: destroying all. Or the having companies. your house repossessed. That would be Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Up next, there'll be tears at Christmas.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
5: Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast.
2: I'm Matt Chorley. And now it's time to bring you the big thing from my Times Radio show. So now we know there will be tears at Christmas. The Prime Minister will be up on his feet virtually, it has to be said, in the House of Commons uh, later. Uh, he'll still self-isolate in Boris Johnson in uh, the flat in Downing Street. But he'll be announcing to MPs in the House of Commons the plans for the new tier system, which will be in place over Christmas, replacing the lockdown in England as it ends on December the 2nd. we expected to hear that gyms and non-essential shops will reopen. But the tier system is going to be beefed up with new, tougher rules for hospitality. It means that some areas will end up in tougher restrictions after the lockdown than they went into the lockdown with. But what do the infection rates look like across England at the moment? Well, just to be clear, uh, we know that Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have got slightly different rules at the moment. We've covered them lots and we'll, of course, cover them uh, in full when we do uh, Dis United Kingdom on the show on Wednesday. So we're just focusing on England right now because that's the announcement coming from Boris Johnson uh, later. But what is the picture across England as it stands right now? Who's up and who is down? Tom Calver is a senior data journalist at The Times and joins me now. Morning, Tom. Good morning. So who's up, who's down, who's looking good and who's in trouble?
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, before we delve into the regional picture, let's just quickly recap the state of the, of the national picture. So there have been about 140,000 cases in the past week. So that's about 20,000 a day. And it means our weekly rate of infections is about 240 per 100,000 people. Now, crucially, this is a drop of about 20% since last week. So it just suggests that the R rate is now below one nationally. So we can think of ourselves hopefully as having passed a turning point about a week ago, ago as the effects of the lockdown start to be so that's the national picture let's let's have a look at the regional stats so one feature we've gotten quite used to in this second wave has been the big differences between the south of England and the north let's start with the north so um Remember, we've got a national level of about 240 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, Now, rates at the moment are highest in Yorkshire and the North East, which both have about 375 cases per 100,000 people. Um, In particular, Hull, the city of Hull, has the highest rate of any council in the country at 650 uh, cases per 100,000 people. Hartlepool nearby isn't far behind on 545. Um, But interestingly, although it's just sort of 30-odd miles away from Hull, the city of York has a fairly low rate of 153, Uh, cases per 100,000 people and it's mimicking this pattern that we're seeing across the country where areas with sort of relatively low deprivation have managed to avoid the very worst of the virus. Now moving on to the northwest, uh, of course very much the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country which saw massive infection rates in September and October. Uh, fortunately, it has seen a significant drop in cases over the past month. The rates are still high across the region at about 290 per 100,000. Uh, we've been hearing lots about Liverpool, for example, where mass testing has been piloted for about a month there. And cases have fallen uh, really quite drastically there. At the start of October, it had a rate of about 750 per 100,000. Now that's come right down to about 230. Um, Over in Manchester too, cases have fallen from nearly 800 per 100,000 at the start of October, down to about 320 now. So perhaps this is a sign that uh, not only the the national lockdown, but also the tiered system before that in the northwest was starting to have a bit of an impact. Or, of course, it could be that all the students uh, there had become immune after getting it in September. I'm
2: I'm well aware, I I know of a a student who used to live with us before moving to uh, Leeds, and yeah, uh, they all went to university, they all seemed to catch it, and now... uh, uh, yeah, they've all got, hopefully, uh, immunity. Um, so there's an amazing map that you've uh, tweeted. I've just reposted a, a link to it as well. Of some, uh, There's a great data um, uh, article on The Times' website. And this map basically shows uh, the change in weekly cases per 100,000. And there's a red arrow uh, if cases are, are rising and a green arrow if cases are falling. And uh, the longer the arrow, the bigger the change and it's really striking that in, in, like you were saying, Liverpool, parts of the northwest, very big green arrows showing that's all very good, it's all coming down. In, in the southeast in particular, in London uh, and parts of the southeast, very long red arrows. So that's um, it's a really smart way of trying to get your head around. It. It's not just about the current rate, but which
1: direction it's going in. Well, uh, yeah, it's almost the exact opposite of what we've seen uh, in in the previous weeks, isn't it? You know, cases rising quite sharply in the southeast and and London and so on and, and, and falling quite a lot in the northwest. Um, it, just kind of focusing on, on the south, um, you know, uh, it, two parts of Kent uh, in particular are causing quite a lot of concern at the moment. So, Swale, which includes uh, Faversham and the Isle of Sheppey, uh, ha- that has about 634 cases per 100,000. Uh, and Kent's director of public health has said that infections are spreading most through the area's more deprived regions. So, it's that, that pattern of deprivation again. Uh, there's similarly high levels in Thanet, which includes Ramsgate and Margate. Um, over in London, uh, the average rate is is now, about 200. Um, in the borough of Havering in the east, it's, it's nearly 400, but other areas of particularly South London uh, still have rates below 150. Uh, what's interesting about London, you know, we were talking about students earlier, but um, until about a week ago, some university students were having their positive tests being chalked down as cases in London boroughs when their GP, where their GPs were, uh, when in fact they were living in completely different cities. Uh, that problem has now been fixed, um, but you know, we're still seeing uh, sort of cases rising in. in in some parts of london despite that um and yeah i mean you while know, we, well, a few months ago we, we saw this quite clear north south divide uh right now in the top 20 uh lists of places with the highest infection rates you've got plenty of areas in, in the south and, and east of england and, and southwest uh that have quite high levels of infection
2: well tom carver really good to speak to you uh, talking us through uh, the data and like i said you can go online tom's tweeted it i've tweeted it as well uh the uh there's a really uh, interesting sort of data story that the Times have done where you can pick through all the data both across the UK but then also by uh, local authority and you can see the changes uh, and where they're happening and you can look up your own uh, local authority as well. So, what we're going to try and do now is tour the country, obviously virtually, uh, not because of coronavirus but because the trains would take far too long if we tried to do it uh, in real life. So, it's all aboard Times Radio's very own train track and trace, everybody. We obviously got our masks on and we're going on a tour of the country on a very modern, uh, train, this one. I think it's one of those high tech trains that Chris Grading bought. Uh, so we're going to go to different parts of England to see what is happening, uh, there. We're heading to York, first of all, uh, where there are currently 170, in the, according of the latest figures, 170, uh, coronavirus cases per 100,000 people. Uh, so we hop off the train. And uh, we head straight to Potions Cauldron, uh, the magic theme shop on York's most famous historic shopping street, the Shambles. Hi. And it's uh, Phil Pinder there. Hi, Phil. Hi there. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So so there's this weird situation where uh, Hull and York, not a million miles apart, we're going to Hull next. York have got, comparatively, it was 170 cases per 100,000. Hull just up the road, 751 so, yeah, no. Uh,
6: obviously Hull's a much bigger city um, and obviously any kind of spike in a bigger city has uh, had much more of detrimental effects as people you know, work in bigger workplaces, things like that whereas York is a, a very, very small city and we had uh, many large employers so um, I think that's probably helped us uh, We were heading up before the lockdown We were having a bit of a peak we have gone into tier 2 just before the lockdown um, and I think Hull were, having a, we were spiking later than us as well so hopefully they'll start heading down in the next week or two
2: and, and how does it feel in York? How's it been? I mean obviously I, I assume that you're are you closed at the moment because of the
6: yeah, yeah, we're closed. We we technically could open if it wants to be a, a loophole uh denier because we do sell alcohol and we are class as an off licence, so we could we could use that loophole if we wanted, but um being the uh the, the greater side we thought we'd uh, we actually close and keep our customers safe. But yeah, no, um closed, obviously open online. Um but um yeah, difficult but to be honest, I think we're looking forward to reopening next week. We're, we've just been uh, having a briefing from the staff this morning. Um, and I think the city's gearing up, really. I chair the retail forum in the city as well. And uh, lots of retailers, I mean, Mark Spencer and the city, are looking at maybe even opening until midnight. So.
2: And yeah, do fun. you think that people will come out? Are people feeling safe? Because, I mean, the, the Shambles is a lovely uh, you know, yep. few, few better places to do, go and do your Christmas shopping, I'd have thought.
6: No, indeed. And, yeah, we're, g- we're going to do as much as possible as a city to keep people safe. We've got, we've got sanitiser towers all around the city so people can sanitise when they are being in a shop, even if the shops don't have the sanitiser themselves. Most shops uh, are operating their own policies as well. I mean, my own shop, for example, which is one group at a time because we're a very small shop. Um, and, and, you know, all the big shops had in queues outside, things like that. So it's a very safe environment to shop in. And what we heard from the local data from our, our local uh, environmental health people was that actually um, staffing retail was amongst the lowest people to have, to have caught COVID in York, which I think shows you the kind of measures we've gone to as retailers to keep people safe.
2: And I suppose what, everything we know now about uh, the virus, that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, if people come into a shop, uh, you know, and they have a browser of your shop and they go to the till and buy your... Buy something if they've got a mask on, they're, they're stood in front of you for what a couple of minutes. Uh, yeah, it's, exactly. It's yeah. not the uh cooped up in someone's front room for several hours it's, it, it appears to be the um the uh most responsible for, for uh spreading it. Um, do, are you concerned that York, though, with cases relatively low, might end up being lumped in with a bigger area in Yorkshire and so you sort of you might end up with stricter rules in York uh because of st- stuff which's happening elsewhere in places yeah, that's, like that's Hull.
6: That's obviously a worry because obviously like North Yorkshire, I think Scarborough's had a bit of a, a boost as well. and uh, if we if we get lumped in as North Yorkshire as an entirety, then, yeah, we, we'd, we'd suffer enormously for that. Um, I would hope that they go, like they did last time, and do it by a local authority area, because it's local authorities that are dealing with this, and, and locally the York Council have actually been really proactive and done their own local track and trace. So they've been getting the data from national once they couldn't track somebody. And uh, from what we've been told, it's had a 100% success rate of tra- contracting
2: everybody. Wow, uh, that's really good. Well, really good to speak to you. Best of luck in the Christmas period. Phil Pinder there from uh, Potions Cauldron. On the the shambles in York. Right, back on the train. A very short train ride. Uh, we're getting we're heading to Hull next, where um, the latest figure shows 751 cases per hundred thousand. And Simon Bristow is co-editor of the Hull story. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. It's nice that we can chat while the, while the while the train before the train's even got into the station. Just shouting out the door. Morning Simon.
5: Um, Good morning.
2: What is the we you've you've spoken to us before on the show. What is the picture in whole like right now?
5: Uh well, we're, we're still, as you said earlier, it's uh, at the top of the, the table for infection rates, which is obviously a concern, so we've got to get these numbers down. Um but it it's it's interesting just listening to York there. It doesn't feel In Hull, like much of a lockdown, uh, certainly not like it was in March. The streets are quite busy, traffic's, uh, you know, quite heavy as well. So um, I'm not sure what the adherence has been this time. But obviously, we've, we've got to get these numbers down in Hull. It's very worrying.
2: The last time we spoke, you were concerned that Hull was being a bit forgotten in all of this. In fact, there was parallels with... Flooding some so years ago when yes. it was only when flooding hit London, you know London suburbs that the government suddenly sort of started taking it uh, seriously. It has is there a feeling now in whole that you are being listened to in a way that you weren't maybe a week or so ago?
5: Yes, I think it, actually the day after we spoke, um local leaders, including our three MPs, had had a meeting with the government's COVID task force. That was on Friday, I believe. Um, so that was positive. Uh, they're due to convene again in a couple of weeks, but it's obviously what happens between now and then that is going to be critical as to what shape we're in to, for coming out of lockdown on the second of what we go into and what sort of support there is available.
2: Yeah, it, it seems as if Boris Johnson's going to announce the sort of the rules today, but we won't get exactly who is in what tier until Thursday. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I don't know, but my looking at the figures, you'd assume that Hull is likely to go into the highest tier. How, how much concern is there in the run-up to, to Christmas, particularly for hospitality? Because um, it does sound as if most retail will be open, but hospitality in the run-up to Christmas should be a really busy time for them. They might, at best, be able to do a bit of takeaway.
5: Yes, that's right. Um, it's likely we'll be in three or even three plus, um, whatever that might look like. Um, so that's going to be really tough. Um, I think the council has asked for a little more support on things like discretionary grants for businesses. Um, to get them through this key period, because obviously that's their harvest. They would expect to make most, you know, most of the money for the year of the next few weeks up until Christmas. Um, what the, our restrictions will look like, we don't yet know, but it's, it's, it's clearly this is going to be another tough period.
2: Well, we wish you luck, uh, Simon. Good to speak to you again on, uh, on Times Radio. It's back on the train now, though. A slightly longer journey now from Hull to Liverpool. I, mean, I haven't actually checked. That feels like a journey which, although geographically isn't very far, might take ages and involve some changes. I'll check that though. We're heading to uh, Liverpool now, which is obviously has uh, been undergoing the mass testing uh, programme with the army drafted in to try and uh, um, carry that out with everyone offered a test whenever they want one. Les O'Grady is the owner and brewer at Neptune Brewery in Liverpool. Hi Les. Oh, yeah, you're okay. I'm oh, very good. I'm oh, very good. Nice to speak to you. How are things in Liverpool? You're, you're at the forefront of, uh, of mass testing. You're the guinea pigs. How's it been? Yeah, we've been the guinea pigs. And I
7: think um, by the looks of it, obviously, it's been a success. Um, obviously, there's been a good uptake in people going for tests. And there's been um, people who have been asymptomatic who've obviously been. Uh, ruled out and isolated. So I think, and as it sees in the figures, um, it does seem to be working. We've we've got a drop in cases, and you know it seems to have done the job. Uh,
2: and if you if you had many tests, uh, one. And how uh, Due you again this do again this week? Actually. So how does it work then? Do you get contacted, or do you just choose when you want to go in?
7: You just you can just 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 roll up, uh, literally just turn up, uh, give it, give your details, and literally by the time you get home, you've got a a response.
2: And, is it, and, uh, and in terms of your business, Neptune uh, Brewery, how, how has this lockdown affected you? Um,
7: this one seems to be a bit worse than the previous one because uh, I don't know why, whether it's just because it's shorter and everyone's decided just to, to just sort of buckle up and stay at home. Uh, but obviously, our, the bulk of our, our business is selling into pubs and bars and restaurants, uh, and obviously, with them being closed, we've literally lost the majority of our business. We've had to move... To an online shop. So we're doing some direct sales online and we do a takeaway from the door once a week for, so people can get a bit of booze for the weekend.
2: Well, that's, uh, I mean, but frankly, we could all do with that. And, it, and in terms of, um, obviously, we don't know yet what tier Liverpool will be in. It looks yeah. like on the latest figures, Liverpool had 280, 000, 280 cases per 100,000, although that does seem to be coming, like you said, it's coming down quite markedly as a result yeah. of that mass testing. Are you how hopeful are you that the pubs and restaurants that you supply will be able to open fully so that you can you can try and shift some beer this side of Christmas? Uh,
7: honestly, not hopeful at all. Um, I don't see pubs being given the green light um, at all. They'd probably be able to carry on, maybe doing some takeaway. Possibly pubs that sell food will be able to open again under the system that it was with the single household. Um, restaurants probably maybe a little bit more leeway, although, you know, hospitality as a whole should be treated as one. Um, in my opinion, that pubs, you know, the, all the ones that we've been into, you know, under the tier system have done everything by the book. You've had to sit there, you've had to wear a mask when you've left your seat. Everything's been spotlessly clean, but for some reason they decide that food stops the virus, and I don't know how that works. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem to. um, It doesn't seem to. uh, And also, I mean, the other thing is, like, if you order it, the thing that struck me is, if you're ordering food, you're more likely to stay in the pub longer. Uh, yeah, you know, right, just popping him for a drink or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Quite, I'm not quite sure. The rules are. Well, no. best of luck, uh, Les. Um, in, the right. in the run up, in the run up to Christmas. Uh, that's, that's Les O'Grady, uh, owner and brewer at Neptune Brewery in Liverpool. It's on the train now. It was just under three hours from Hull to Liverpool with one change. This is a monster one though. Now we're heading from Liverpool to Cornwall. That's seven and a half hours with three changes. Uh, yeah, uh, having tried to get to and from Cornwall on the train many times before, I can appreciate that. So we're headed to Cornwall now, um, where uh, only 81 cases per 100,000, the most recent figures from the government. Malcolm Bell, the Chief Executive of Visit Cornwall, uh, and joins me now. Hi, Malcolm. Hi, from sunny Cornwall. Is it really sunny there? It is. Oh, see, it's cloudy. It was sunny here first thing, and now it's clouded over. It, the sun always shines on Cornwall, as we know, though. It's- um uh, talk us through the picture for tourism in Cornwall. I mean, obviously, we're not in the sort of the height of it in uh, in the summer months. But, um, you know, trying to extend the season and all that sort of thing just hasn't been able to uh, happen this year.
8: Um, well, we had a very good October and actually November was looking quite good. But obviously, we have been in lockdown. So it has closed down hospitality and tourism for this month, which although it was a low month, Bearing in mind we lost three months was quite valuable, so it would have been nice to continue, but obviously we'll play our part in battling this virus on
2: the national scene. Uh, and what about the prospects uh, for the coming weeks and months? Is there, is there normally a bit of a pick-up around the Christmas period, people having Christmas and New Year away?
8: Yeah, I mean, that's the big challenge for the tourism businesses is to survive till next year. Long term and medium term prospects are good. But the old thing about uh, you know cash being king. So Christmas and New Year and actually February half term are quite vital in little good dollops of cash coming into businesses. So everybody is looking very keenly at what the Prime Minister might be announcing in the new tiers and the arrangements for Christmas.
2: And what's the case that you've been rating, making is uh, is visit Cornwall? Um, that Cornwall should be, you know, like I said, it's got very low rates, and they seem to be uh, even coming down. So, uh, what, what's the argument you're making about uh, what should be able to happen in Cornwall? I think
8: the main thing is it is about communication. In fact, you know, we had two over two million visitors down in July and August and the rate actually didn't go up at all. In fact, slightly dropped. So we can operate. Admittedly, winter is a bit more challenging, but people do like to be outdoors. Um, the one thing we would like is a couple of things. One is the hinted at thing that you can finish off your drink or your meal, uh, b- between 10 and 11 and that'll help staggering and also <clears throat> enable restaurants to do two services. In, in a in an evening, which in the Christmas period would be quite critical. The other one is clarity on the tiers, really. Obviously, our our staying customers don't live in Cornwall, when well, the vast majority don't. So knowing what those tiers are and what the restrictions might be could could really affect Christmas, particularly if it's um, banning two households staying together, because a lot of people will rent a cottage out uh, or or anywhere really and come down with the uh, with their children and maybe other grandparents there. So we'll be looking very keenly on that to see what the uh, what the regulations will be
2: yeah well we wish you um well down there as well and i hope that we can you know we managed to have our week in cornwall in august and i hope we come back down soon as well malcolm bell the chief executive of visit cornwall rounding off our tour <laughs> oh we're coming back to london are we well i i mean that takes a very long time sure road to london is going to take i've four or five hours probably first grade I've, I've wasted too much of my life on first grade wasted jokes uh, but anyway there we are uh, that is our tour of uh, England over trying to get a picture of what's happening in different parts of the country and like I said you can go online and explore all of the data about what's happening to coronavirus in different parts of the country go to thetimes.co.uk uh, or go to my um, Twitter page uh, at Matt Jolly, where um, I've tweeted a link to the, the piece that Tom Calvert was talking to us about <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to
5: times.radio forward slash subscribe.